Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, a 40-mile Russian convoy advances towards Kyiv, and Russian attacks on civilian targets there and in Ukraine's second-largest city, Kharkiv, are intensifying. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, citing recent attacks on schools, hospitals, and homes, condemned Russia this morning, saying that human rights abuses are, quote, mounting by the hour. Images of resistance by Ukrainian troops and civilians, and images of families streaming to western borders in freezing temperatures as refugees, have captured the attention and support of the West, including Californians. This hour, we hear about your connections to Ukraine and your reactions to events there. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California stands with the people of Ukraine, tweeted Governor Newsom's office as the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, and government buildings lit up in blue and yellow. The Ukrainian embassy in San Francisco says it's received a flood of calls from people wanting to go there to fight. From San Diego to Sacramento, Californians of Ukrainian descent and non-Ukrainians alike have been moved to support a nation outnumbered and outgunned as it defends itself against an attack by its much larger nuclear neighbor. In this hour, we want to hear how you feel about the events in Ukraine as Russia's attack intensifies today. You can share them, as always, at 866-733-6786 or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at KQED Forum. I'm joined by Ole Kuzo now, a trustee at the Ukrainian Heritage Club of Northern California. Ole Kuzo, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you in, for inviting me, and thanks for having me for in this difficult time. This is very, very, very important for me to be here. Well, we really appreciate you being here, and I know that you have many family members in Ukraine. You're a first-generation immigrant to the U.S. from Ukraine. What are your family members experiencing right now? Well, they are experiencing uh, sirens and, and airstrike warnings, and they are going on and off. And and uh, and I'm, I'm I'm tuned to the same channel, and and it's been on and off for two or three times at least in the last 24 hours. Uh, so they they had to tape their windows, and they have to find some 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 place to shelter. Uh, some of my friends they they tried to to leave some. Uh, some of my relatives they managed to leave to Poland by foot, so it's a it's a it's a very very hard time and it's a it's a war time. Yes, your brother-in-law, as I understand, took your cousin and her young children to the Polish border. What was that experience like for them? Uh, well, the experience is there is a two-lane street, right? One one in one direction and one in reverse. So they turned that two-lane street into three-lane street all going into Poland direction. So 
And so you see, you can imagine the, the traffic jam and the lines going on and on. So they had to, to, to go there by car to get to the border. They had to wait for her to, to cross the border and it, and it took more than more than 24 hours and then they 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 return back because they are, are males of the uh who are required to join the the, the, the territorial uh, defense uh, forces so they 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 went back but to to go back right there is no there is no room on the, on the road to go back so they have to find some back roads to 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 return back home and how is your brother-in-law since he couldn't go with them well, he's torn, right? Uh, but but at least he's he's now relieved that that, that he his wife and, and two kids are safe. Uh, so I guess that that gives him some some hope and glimpse of hope. Yes, your mother-in-law, I understand, is in Lviv, a city in the west. Correct, correct. This is the city I was born in, and this is the city um, my wife and I had two kids before we moved to. Uh, you U.S. and my mother-in-law now stays in Lviv. And she, how is she preparing? I understand that she is certainly trying to prepare to stay safe through all of this. Yes, yes. So she's uh, she's she's trying to 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 make some room in the, in the, in the cellar, right? So so if the the, the serious bombing comes in, she, at least she can find some some shelter. Uh, you said normally, in the cellar, is that right? In, in a cellar, yes. It's like a, a basement uh, of the house. They, they live in a, in a, in a house and, and they have some basement space. So she had to make some room where she can stay during those those uh, air, air uh, warnings. And Ole, how are you holding up? I imagine you must be so worried about your family's safety. It is, and 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 this is um, again. This this is very uh, um, uh, familiar feeling because that that was the same thing we we felt during the uh, the revolution of dignity in 2014 when 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 the, the blood was uh, on the streets of Kiev when when there was this uh, uh, revolution of dignity uh, and. The same feeling we felt when when the the occupation started in 2014 uh, was uh, Russian forces moving in, in into Ukraine and don't, uh, taking the Donbas and Luhansk region. Mm. So so the feeling is is a very very similar, but this time around, uh, I I think that, that that there there's something different about it, and and there is there is a turning point, right? And and it looks like. Uh, uh, there, there is a unity, right? At least we we hear unity. And I was I was in San Francisco with my kids the, on, on this Sunday for a protest, and this was a very powerful and, and very very energetic uh, event. And 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 I think we are now uh, more and more united. And and this is uh, uh, this this feels. The same in the sense that it's, it's a the, the desperate time, but the, but this feels different because now we feel uh, support. I'm talking with Ole Kuzo of the Ukrainian Heritage Club of Northern California, also a, a data analyst at Hewlett Packard. And you, our listeners, are sharing how you are connected to events in Ukraine or have been moved to show support for Ukraine. Uh, let me go to Kenneth and Benisha. Hi, Kenneth. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I just I was lucky enough to represent the United States in a world championship windsurfing competition right when uh, Ukraine got free. And the people were beautiful people. They took a bus down to Sicily to our championship. Wonderful people. And I just think at a time like this, our government's, you know, we waited and look what's happening. And maybe this is a time to, you know, bring back Martin Luther King's dream and Nelson Mandela and do a peace march to Ukraine mm-hmm. or something like that. I mean, it'd be easy to want to get in a confrontation and fight to fight for their freedom. But why not do a peace march through from Poland and Warsaw and get everyone in Europe and America and everyone to get there to fight for a dream of peace because our governments aren't helping us. Kenneth, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Ole, you mentioned that you were at the, the March the Protest in San Francisco on Sunday. Have you been surprised by Californians' show of support for the Ukrainian cause? No, no. This is, like I said, we we were in San Francisco in 2014 uh, when, when the revolution broke, when the government, uh, U- Ukrainian government, refused to, to go on and proceed with a, with a European application to go to European Union and that and we were petitioning our Ukrainian embassy at the time. So uh, familiar faces, I, I, mm-hmm. I should say. And, and this, is, this is, again, one of the upside of this. Since 2014, we've, we've, we've seen the faces, and we know now that the people who we can re- rely on, and, and, and we see the, the same movement. So, so this becomes a, a model of, of this uh, civic society, and, and, and we, we're building those connections here. So uh, no surprise here. Again, I was uh, uh, surprised by, by the number of people because now I see international surprises. I, I saw uh, Polish people. I saw Hong Kong people. I saw um, uh, Romanian. I saw Belarusian, right? So that, that was a, a, quite a surprise. But, uh, but, but, but to say I was surprised, no, no, it, it was a good surprise. Um, while there have been a lot of people who have come out in support, you have noted that you feel like a lot of Americans don't fully understand the conflict. If there was something that you feel most needs to be understood about how we got to this point, what would you say it is? Well, well first of all, uh, let's correct the language here. This is not a conflict. This is a war, right? Yeah. This is this is an invasion, and this was something that that unprovoked and uh, and 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 unjustified force by by Russia. And uh, so, first of all, that, that there's there's that. Uh, second of all, I'm glad that that now the there won't be when I first moved to U.S. Uh, there was this misunderstanding, ah, oh, Ukrainians and Russians, it's like the same flavor. No, this is not. And, and that was the, exactly the point Putin is trying to make, that, that Ukrainians are, are just a flavor of Russians, which are, they are not. Uh, and, and, and I think now, uh, now I see, I see people, people uh, make that distinct, distinction and they will never, uh, never, ever be confusing Ukrainians with, with Russians. So uh, I think that that was the, the, the very first thing I, I noticed here in U.S. And now I see uh, the, the, the things are, are corrected by unfortunate events like this. How are you thinking about the outcome of this invasion, the impact that it will have 
on the Ukrainian people. I know you must be hopeful, but it must also be quite difficult. It is, it is, and 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 I think that the outcome is, uh, if history is a lesson, right? The, the outcome for Ukraine was was always uh, uh, positive, but it came at a price, right? If we look at the 20th century World War II, the 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 Holodomor genocide on Ukrainian people, the the independence it, uh, it in 1991. Unfortunate event of a Chernobyl explosion. Uh, it's a Ukraine, right? But, but then you think, uh, why are those accidents are, are happening, right? And, and this is the basic rule: the accidents don't happen. Accidents are caused, and uh, we have to understand that. And 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 the cause is is a is a, uh, probably a, a neglect. People don't don't read the history, and people try to. Uh, forget about the history and uh, the the outcome the immediate outcome of this war uh, i mean putin may have won the the battle but he i think he already lost the war because even if he invades and and, and kiev people are united and they will fight and 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 putin will will no longer be able to hold hold ukraine that's that's, I think, the, 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 the outcome. And unfortunately, it, it came already at the price. And, and, and I think there, there will be, uh, unfortunately, more, more casualties and more human life lost because we see it happening right now. It's a fifth day and, and, and not, 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 not stopping. Well, Ole, thank you so much for talking with us today. And, and our thoughts are with you and your family. Thank you for having me. Ole Kuzo of the Ukrainian Heritage Club of Northern California. We'll have more after the break, including looking at the history of Ukraine. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has become increasingly ferocious as hospitals, schools, and residential buildings have been bombed and the death toll for civilians increases by the hour. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Have you been moved to show support for Ukraine? How how are you connected to events there? If you are, do share those with us as well. Or just how you're feeling about how things have been unfolding. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866 733 
888-789-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email us at forum at kqed.org. Joining me now is Timothy Fry, a professor of post-Soviet foreign policy at Columbia University. Professor Fry, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. Also with us is Alexander Motil, a professor of political science at Rutgers University, also Ukrainian-American and a specialist in Ukraine, Russia, and post-Soviet politics. Professor Motil, also glad to have you on as well. My pleasure. Thank you. Just before the break, we were talking with Oleg Kuzo, and he made this point about how people forget history. And I'm wondering if you could just remind us of some of that history. Historically, was Ukrainian an independent state, or how was it understood? You mean the language was Ukraine. of the state? Was Ukraine well, an independent state, and how, how was, yes, how was it understood since it did maintain its language and culture? Okay, well, the first state that Ukrainians considered to be Ukrainian um, actually you know, existed in the area of Kiev roughly a thousand years ago, having been founded in the ninth century, and it survived through the middle of the 13th. Um, and that's generally, as I said, what Ukrainians considered to be their first full-fledged state. Um, and then there was a period of non-statehood until about roughly the middle of the 17th century, where the Cossacks in the area of Ukraine formed an autonomous unit, which, well, an independent unit, uh, which existed for a couple of decades. And then, then it continued as an autonomous unit within the Russian Empire, as well as within Poland, until roughly the middle to, towards the end of the 18th century. And then finally, there was an attempt to revive Ukrainian statehood during World War I. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a declaration of independence in January of 1918, but that didn't last very long, and by 1921-22, that pretty much ended. Um, there was another effort made in World War II, but that was even short, more short-lived, survived for a couple of weeks, until finally in 1991, once the, uh, the Soviet Union fell apart, Ukraine became independent once again. Can you talk about that period when it was part of the Soviet Union and how the relationship between basically Stalin shifted uh, with regard to how it treated and handled Ukraine? Well, in the 1920s, before Stalin came to power, uh, the entire Soviet Union and Ukraine in particular enjoyed a fair amount of cultural freedom. So there was a real boom in cultural activity, again, as I said, throughout the entire Soviet Union, but, as, but also in Ukraine. With Stalin's coming to power and his revolution from above, which entailed the so-called collectivization of private property, rapid industrialization and things like that, one of the key, uh, one, of the, one of the peoples that most resisted were the Ukrainians. So starting in 1929, Ukrainian peasants were staging a very large number of rebellions, riots, uh, and other forms of uh, opposition to Soviet policies. That continued through the early 1930s. And in 1932, Stalin and his henchmen essentially adopted a policy of genocide. They engineered a famine, which between December of 1932 and June of 1933, that is to say within six years, it cost Ukrainians no fewer than 4 million lives. Mm -hmm. 
Some people estimate the number might go as high as six or seven million, but four for sure. Uh, that's an astounding kill rate. And that pretty much took the wind out of the Ukrainian opposition, because just as the famine was taking place, the inter Ukrainian intelligentsia, the Ukrainian church, artists, cultural activists, and people like that were imprisoned, sent off to the gulag. Many were shot. So that by the end of the 1930s, the Ukrainian people were completely enervated. That enervation and the repressions continued through the 40s and into the early 50s with Stalin. Um, and in that period, by the way, between 1914 and Stalin's death in 1953, so we're talking about two wars, uh, the famine genocide known as the Holodomor, plus a whole bunch of other repressions, uh, the Ukrainians lost no fewer than 15 million excess deaths. That is to say, people who died non for not unnatural causes. 15 million, one five, which is just an astounding kill rate. And it gives you a sense of the disastrous nature of the first half of the 20th century for the Ukrainian people. Timothy Fry, why was Russia, Russia so threatened by Ukraine, Ukrainian identity? Well, it's not clear that Russia was, was threatened Soviet by Union. Ukrainian identity. It's clear that Putin um, has been very frightened by the prospect of a prosperous, democratic Ukraine that would be an example of a Slavic country that's ruled by principles very differently than those by which he himself rules. It seems to me that is really the, the big issue. I do a lot of public opinion polling in Russia. And over the last decade, every year, um, uh, the Levada Center, which is a very reputable quality of polling firm, has asked Russians what kind of relations they would like to have with Ukraine. And 80% of Russians would like to see normal relations with the sovereign Ukraine, and fewer than 20% would like to see unification with Ukraine. So most Russians have moved on uh, from the Soviet period and you know, recognize Ukraine uh, as a sovereign state. Um, but unfortunately, uh, President Putin seems to have uh, a, a very different view. And I should say that the decision to launch this war was made by a very small group of people, uh, reporters whose judgment I trust a lot, um, uh, who have better contacts in the Kremlin than I do, uh, report that uh, even within the big business community, they had no idea uh, of the extent to which Putin was going to launch this war. Um, so we really want to draw a distinction, I think, between whether Russians uh, recognize Ukraine and whether or not the Kremlin does. Yes. One of the things that we've also seen emerging, or a lot of people who are just casually on social media, are these images of Putin at these incredibly long tables with people seated very far away from him who are supposedly his advisors. Can you just help us understand what that what's going on there? Sure. So the two things are going on. One is Putin has been extremely isolated during COVID. Uh, in order to meet with him, uh, people have to quarantine for 14 days, uh, and then they have to go through multiple tests to meet with him. So he's seen very few people. Uh, and so this is what the, one of the reasons for the big distance between him 
and the, uh, the people with whom uh, he's meeting. But the real reason for these two meetings that Putin has had, which are very unusual, the first with the security services, and then a second with uh, uh, the business community, is to, is to force them to publicly uh, display their loyalty uh, to Mr. Putin and to reduce the incentive for any of them to defect uh, uh, from uh, being loyal to him. It's very important that these, this was political theater, um, but it does play an important role, both uh, to try to create an image that the elite is behind Putin uh, and to discourage anybody from uh, trying to, to, to defect. We've got calls coming in and let me go to a few now. Zena in Oakland, join us. Hi, Zena. Good morning. What would you like to say? Well, I just wanted to say how I want to support Oleg in that case. Definitely Ukrainians and Russians. Uh, I am Ukrainian, and I remember growing up as Ukrainian, and people would say, oh, you're Russian. <laughs> and I'd say, no, no, we're Ukrainian. You know, it's different. So I really appreciate Oleg bringing that to the attention, because I found myself after saying, yes, I'm Russian. And I really felt like I was betraying my family because I lost a lot of relatives. Zina, I'm so sorry. Unfortunately, we don't have you on the best line right now, but I think I understand what you are saying with regard to Ukrainian and Russian identity and the differences. And I do wonder, Alexandra Mojil, if you could just talk a little bit about what the language differences are like how in modern day Ukraine those cultural and, and language differences have manifested and what Americans need to understand about that. Well, the language differences, you know, first of all, first and foremost, I mean, Ukrainian and Russian and Belarusian, they are, are separate languages. I mean, they're recognized as such by linguists. Um, they are mutually more or less comprehensible at a relatively low level. Um, so I, for instance, when I first encountered Russians, I was able to understand a lot, but not when it got more interesting and more serious. And the same holds true for Russians vis-a-vis -vis Ukrainians and Belarusians. I'm told that the similarity between Portuguese and Spanish or Italian and French is somewhat comparable to the distinction between Russian and Ukrainian. So the languages are similar, the East Slavic. Um, the cultures obviously are also in some respects similar. I mean, you know, again, having this, you know, simple geographic proximity leads to that. That said, there are extremely important different historical trajectories. Uh, Ukrainians essentially came out of the Kievan state I mentioned before. They then experienced roughly 200 years under which they, under the influence of Lithuania, then another 250 years uh, under the influence of Poland and Lithuania, which meant that their culture, as well as their history, as well as a lot about their mentality and things like that, was very much influenced by uh, the West, Western Europe. Um, so things like the Renaissance, things like the Enlightenment, they actually made their way into significant parts of Ukraine. Um, and then in contrast, Russia was further north, further east, far more influenced by its proximity to Siberia and by the fact that for close to 200 years, Moscow was subservient to the Mongol Empire. So you have a difference in values, a difference in perspectives, 
uh, which also colored uh, the political, the politics of these regions. Um, and then you can go on, right? In the 17th century, I mentioned the Cossacks. They were essentially freebooters, um, individuals who were out to escape serfdom in contrast to uh, the territories further north occupied by the Muscovite state where serfdom was very much entrenched. Uh, and that too created certain kinds of myths and understandings and self-understandings. So when you look at the cultural, the two cultures superficially, they look similar. I mean, you know, they were embroidered shirts of various kinds, they eat borscht, things like that. But when you go deep, more deeply into the actual cultural artifacts, into the meanings, into the history, you begin to see that the distinction between Russians and Ukrainians is no less than the distinction between Poles and Russians. Um, and no one would confuse Poles and Russians. <laughs> Some have suggested that since especially 2014, there's been a real concerted shift towards speaking more Ukrainian. Do you think that's true, Alexander Motil? Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. It's, it's audible. You go to the streets and you can actually hear more people speaking the language in public. It's also been documented by public opinion surveys. I mean, there's been a profound shift, uh, certainly within the last eight years, but even more so in the last 30 years, with increasing numbers of ethnic Ukrainians who would normally have been speaking Russian, either becoming bilingual or, be, or moving towards the Ukrainian language on an exclusive basis. I mean, I myself know about 20 people who fall into the second category, who politically made the choice to become Ukrainian and cease speaking Russian, except, of course, when they're talking to Russians, obviously. So that's obviously a trend. And it's also been the current war is accelerating that as well. Uh, there were a whole number of postings last week on Facebook and other social media sites of Ukrainians who were publicly declaring that because of the aggression, because of the war, they were abjuring the Russian language and would now speak exclusively Ukrainian. So there is definitely that shift taking place. How that'll play out in the future will obviously depend on the outcome of the war and whether Putin decides to cleanse the area of Ukrainians, possibly engage in a genocide of some kind. Uh, but at least at this point in time, there is definitely a movement uh, towards Ukrainian. And, that I, and, and again, barring some catastrophe initiated by Putin, that is likely to continue into the foreseeable future. Well, Michael tweets, I am sickened. I knew Ukrainian Americans in college. I worked with Ukrainian Americans. And 20 years ago, I met a Ukrainian American whose family came here because of religious persecution. From the genocide of the gulags to Chernobyl, Russia was never good for Ukraine. This listener tweets, yesterday, the news interviewed Russians in San Francisco who defend Russia, including Orthodox Russian priests using the same words that Putin uses. How do we challenge those statements? Timothy Fry, do you have any thoughts on that listener's question? Um, sure. I think uh, you know, we live in an era of uh, you know, social media, and it's very difficult, I think, for uh, many Russians to figure out uh, you know, what's true and what's not, and particularly during a war. In war, the first casualty is truth. So it is difficult to figure out um, uh, you know, what, uh, what is going on. But in this case, I think even within Russia, there is just shock and dismay and to some degree horror 
over uh, Russians' actions. Uh, many Russian elites uh, prior to the invasion were uh, declaring that Putin's moves were all a bluff. Russian, Russia wasn't the kind of country that would just uh, invade uh, a neighbor on a large scale without a pretext, without good reason. And I think many Russians are really reassessing um, their view of Vladimir Putin in light of re recent events. You know, it's one thing for uh, governments to be able to hoodwink their populations on matters where the populace is not really paying that close attention or where the issues are complicated and hard to understand, um, or they can play on deep emotional ties. Um, but I think even for, for Russians who would be sympathetic to Putin, and I know, you know a good number of them, even they are having a hard time uh, trying to understand uh, uh, you know, how this could have, uh, how this could have come about. So in looking, the public opinion data, I think will show a kind of uh, spike in a kind of rally around the flag as, as tends to happen in the initial days of a war, but we're not seeing anything like the upsurge in support for President Putin that we saw in 2014 after the annexation of Crimea. So I think the public reaction is very different in part because the context is different. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's just much more uh, difficult. It's much easier for the Kremlin to have a narrative about the annexation of Crimea rather than about this invasion of Ukraine. I guess the question is, as you're describing, right, elites starting to reassess, you're talking about the public seeing real impacts. I think the question is, what effect will that have? on Vladimir Putin. We're coming up on a break now. Let me just reintroduce you. Timothy Fry is Marshall D. Shulman, professor of post-Soviet foreign policy at Columbia University, also the author of Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. Alexander Motil is professor of political science at Rutgers University, a Ukrainian-American and specialist in post-Soviet politics. We'll have more with them and you after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is in its sixth day with the situation on the ground changing by the hour, not for the better. 
We're joined by you, our listeners, sharing your thoughts about what's happening there and your connections. Also, if you've been moved to show support for Ukraine and why, 866-733-6786 is the number. Email address forum at kqed.org. You can also post thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. On the line now, we have Masha Rumer, uh, who is an author of the book Parenting with an Accent. Masha Rumer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Nina. We're having you back on because I understand you have family members in Russia who came out and protested the invasion there. We've been hearing that many protesters have been arrested. Can you tell us what happened to them? That's right. Um, I have. I still have a lot of family back in Russia, and I should just preface it that just <laughs> what makes it so complicated is that so many people, including uh, those that are in diaspora that are living here in the Bay Area and the United States, have relatives from both Russia and Ukraine, just like I do. For example, half of my family is originally from Ukraine and have lived there for generations. Um, and before I talk about my, my family being arrested, I also want to say that I had a family in Ukraine that were just able to um, to flee, and uh, oh. they're now abroad uh, to safety. But we were incredibly worried about them, obviously, and, and so many of my friends still have family and friends there. And I'm, I'm glad. I mean, they're worried sick. Um, I'm glad to hear yes. they're safe, yes. Thank you. So are we. It's It's been a... V- we, we obviously stand with Ukraine, and uh, we are flabbergasted by this attack. Uh, and I know I speak for all of my, um, you know, the, the entire Ukrainian and Russian community and anybody from the former Soviet Union. It, it, nobody expect. Uh, we did not expect this, and we're horrified. But uh, my family has been um, coming out to protest peacefully, and um, they were detained on the street, and um, the wife and the teenage children were sent back home, but um, the man was arrested and taken to jail Um where there was no information given about him. I think it was a whole bus. They basically are grabbing people by the busloads. And um, they did not get access to an attorney up until the very night. And uh, I think the wife tried to bring him a blanket and some food, and that was not taken to him, and they were not given information about when he's going to be released. Um, Luckily, he was released. I'm not sure if they're going to continue staying silent after this but this is this is happening all over the place thousands of people across russia are coming out to protest um and chant you know no war no war but i know in another city where also relatives they're uh playing really loud music to drown out the sounds of their chanting like the international uh, song or this band lube who is this kind of very russian esque and nationalist band from back from the 1980s so that uh, those screams would not be heard and it's really scary Uh, now they're currently drafting legislation i'm hearing um that could potentially imprison people who spread quote-unquote fake information about they call it a special operation so you're not allowed to use the word war or invasion which it obviously is and a lot of news sites have already been shut down for using that language so people that are still in Russia are under this, you know, are victims of this information war. Um, They're not able to read what's actually happening. There's a possibility Facebook and Twitter might be shut down as well. Um, It's, it's, it's a huge mess. It's, it's, it's a really terrible time for the whole world and especially people in Ukraine. And how are they feeling the effects of the fall of the, of the currency, sort of the economic turmoil 
though that will be a process in terms of how and when things are felt most acutely, are they saying that it's affecting them? It's it's already affecting Russians, including those that are not supporting it. I, I do want to let you know that many are actually wanting to come out of protest, but they're simply afraid because um, it's a country that, you know, it hasn't had the suppressive regime as it used to be, for example, you know, during Stalin. Um, but it looks like it's coming back. Um, yes, people are, the ruble is falling dramatically. Um, a lot of people who live here um, are sending, you know, have been sending money to support their relatives who live in poverty, and now they cannot transfer money anymore to Russia. Um, some people have, you know, credit cards from America they send back home or have been sending for a long time because so many people there are poor. And, of course, Visa is not no longer doing business in Russia, so people are not able to to pay for, for goods. Um, you know, they're hoarding food. They're withdrawing cash. Um I have relatives that um, have stocked up on medications, and I know people who are using, you know, life-saving medical devices uh, that are from America and, and the West, and who knows what's going to happen to them. And these are not the people that support Putin or the Kremlin. They, they're victims to this, to, to, to this they're victims to this war and, um, as well. Well, Masha... Um, my heart is with Ukraine right now. Um, that's first and foremost, and it's victims. Well, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Masha Rumer is a Russian-American with family in Russia and Ukraine. We're also talking with Alexander Motol, a professor of political science at Rutgers, a Ukrainian-American and specialist in Ukraine, Russia, and post-Soviet politics. Timothy Fry is with us. Marshall D. Shulman, professor of post-Soviet foreign policy at Columbia University. And of course, you, our listeners, let me go to some more of your calls. Joy in Avila Beach, join us. Hi. I have maternal Ukrainian ancestry, and that makes this particularly painful to watch. Um, I believe America should throw everything at this unprovoked all-out assault on a peaceful neighbor up to and including sending troops following Putin's example of breaking his word that he would not enter that country. This is heartbreakingly horrifying, and I feel so helpless. Joy, I'm so sorry. Thank you. And I, I imagine, I mean, Alexander Motel, you have family as well. Uh, you have connections to Ukraine. How are you feeling as you watch this unfold? What has it been like for you well, as you've been following these a... events? Well, I've been following them 24-7 just about uh, for the last few months. And, of course, in the last two weeks, it's been more like 48-7. Uh, so this is, you know, I, I never in my life did I think I would experience a war, even if it's vicariously. But thanks to the Internet, I mean, one is actually, it's almost as if one were there. And one hears about the troops advancing in real time and the troops retreating and the people being killed. And you can almost hear the moans and the groans and the shouts and the screams. Uh, so personally, uh, again, I'm devastated on the one hand, and I veer from a sense of optimism about what might the Ukrainians be able to pull off. And then on, on other occasions, it's a sense of despair when I consider the fact that Putin might have in mind a genocide. I really wouldn't put it past him. Uh, the one source, the one positive source and constant positive source of encouragement is the response on the part of the international community, on the part of the Americans um, of America, of, the, of Western Europe, and in general, foreign countries. 
Um, I imagine that sanctions would be imposed, protests would be voiced, concern would be expressed, as it has been in the past, and that would be pretty much that. But instead, I'm, you know, I'm flabbergasted at the degree to which uh, everybody, it seems to me, in the U.S., in North America, South America, Europe, and other parts of the world has gotten on board. Corporations are on board. Countries are on board. Switzerland has essentially violated its neutrality. Uh, Luxembourg is giving arms. I mean, good Lord, it's simply astounding. Um, but at the same time, you know, the flip side of the coin is that finally Ukraine is getting some of the recognition that it's been trying to get so desperately for the last 100 years. And it's a tragedy that it took a war and possibly a genocide to get that recognition. So one, of course, is always living in that hope. Um, I'm not sure if it's just hope or, is this, or whether it's also an expectation, but it's something in between a hope and an expectation hmm. that somehow things will work out. While at the same time, you know, when reading the news, I can't avoid, I can't help but think this could go on for months, possibly even years. Yes. And the end result of that all could be devastation, complete and total devastation. Yes, I, we I could deal with that. I'm sorry, what was that last part? After you again, said as I said, I just don't know how to deal with that. I, I can't I can't wrap my head against the prospect of the extermination of Ukrainians. I mean, and this is conceivable. For the first time in my life, this is actually thinkable. Let me go to caller Jilda in San Francisco. Hi, Jilda. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Great. Um, I'm calling because I heard an earlier caller make a, uh, a suggestion for a large global peace march. And as much as I appreciate that sentiment, I would like to offer a more practical suggestion, um, which is we need to ramp up the international support for Ukraine, these sanctions, and everything that hopefully targets the oligarchs and not the people of Russia. It's the oligarchs and Putin regime that are making this happen. And so we need to focus on them and do whatever we can to spare the people of Russia. But I'd like to point out that this conflict is because uh, no one wants weapons of mass destruction on their border. Russia is using this argument that they don't want NATO on their border. They don't want weapons on their border. Nobody wants weapons on their border. So what they need now, these weapons that are supposed to keep us safe are actually throwing us towards World War III. And our very weapons are going to kill us. So what we need is we need immediately an immediate ceasefire. Whatever the world can do to make Russia stop attacking uh, the Ukraine. Once that's been achieved, we can step back by having a de-escalation the way we did in the 80s. Uh, Reagan and Gorbachev made agreements that they would both simultaneously remove their weapons. And we need that now. Because if we don't come back from this brink, we don't know where we're going to go. And the whole world is at risk now because of this. So, so I would like to make this practical suggestion. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on what is going on and making that suggestion. Timothy Fry, I'm also thinking about what Alexander Moto was saying in terms of what 
what has been an outpouring of support and optimism that he experiences in the displays of intense bravery that we have seen from Ukrainians putting up a fight against the Russians. But at the same time, um, Alexander is talking about a real enormous tragedy that is unfolding and potentially one that would be very difficult to wrap his mind around. What, based on your, you know, studying of Putin, what would like, stop Russia? <laughs> like, like Alex, I've been just completely gutted uh, by this whole experience. Uh, I've been working in Ukraine the last three years on a project, and I do a lot of work in Russia. And I'm getting, you know, two types of text messages from my Ukrainian friends. It's, uh, um, I'm I, going to get my gun from the government so I can fight the Russians, or uh, I'm glad I'm alive as I'm, you know, cowering in my apartment as the bombs go off. And then from a lot of my Russian colleagues, I'm getting just this incredibly pained um, uh, you know, responses about how guilty they feel for what uh, th their government has done and how a number of them are afraid of a knock on the door because of the, the protests. So, you know, I mean, this has just been a really, uh, and I think the whole generation of Russians uh, just see their whole world, um, you know, going up in smoke uh, as the, the Putin administration tries to build this fortress Russia that's just completely cut off from the, the outside world. Yes. Uh, is that where this is going? We had Rose Godmuller on, uh, Deputy oh, yeah. Secretary of NATO, uh, saying that, you know, Putin is turning Russia into a pariah state. Is that what the end is? That, that is the, the coming future already. If, um, you know, FIFA, the International Soccer Organization, is not exactly an example of moral rectitude by any stretch. They've, uh, you know, barred Russia uh, from from playing. Uh, uh, you know, Russians have no idea, I think, just the extent to which their country is going to be seen as a rogue state um, uh, on just so many cultural dimensions, financial dimensions, um, and uh, it's going to set back, uh, you know, a whole generation of young, smart, ambitious Russians who, you know, had hoped to make their lives in uh, at least a Russia that was, uh, you know, better than the one that they're living in uh, at the moment. And I also know a lot of people who are leaving. Many Russians have left in the last decade as uh, the level of repression has increased. The brain drain has been uh, fairly severe. It's a very well-educated, urbanized uh, country. Um, and uh, they're losing a lot of human capital. Uh, so, you know, I really, the, the future of Ukraine is incredibly bleak, but just from a, a, the devastation that is taking place now and is likely to continue into the future. Um, uh, but there is a sense of unity in Ukraine and a vibrant civil society that is just, uh, uh, you know, not apparent at all uh, in Russia. And Russia will be fragmented and divided by this conflict uh, for generations to come. Timothy Fry, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Carol in Santa Rosa. Hi, Carol. Join us. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a question about 
Ukrainian versus Jewish versus Soviet identity. Um, my own family um, were refugees. My grandparents were refugees from Ukraine, Vinnytskaya Oblast, um, back in the um, around the time of the revolution. And I have cousins who emigrated from Odessa and Kiev area, and more recently in the in the 1980s. And all of them, none of them spoke of being from Ukraine. They spoke of being from Russia or later the Soviet Union. And and all of them suffered um, severe anti-Semitism and from Ukrainians and Russians. And so now I, I I'm confused about hmm. whether those Ukrainian Jewish Ukrainians and non-Jewish Ukrainians if there's a difference between their loyalty to the the, the situation and the, their support of Ukraine. Carol, Carol versus, thanks. Sorry to cut you off. We're just coming so close to the end of the program, and I just want to know, Alexander, if you can shed any light on what Carol is raising. Well, Carol makes a very good point. You know, until about until Ukraine became independent, um, most Jewish people from Ukraine would have considered themselves as part of Russian culture, Russian history, and so on. But since independence, and especially since the two revolutions, one of 2004, the other in 2014, there has been a very impressive trend amongst Jewish Ukrainians, excuse me, Jews from Ukraine, to identify with this new Ukrainian state, which aspires to be diverse, tolerant, multi-ethnic, multi-religious. Um, and I myself, I know five, I've got five or six Jewish friends who are amongst the greatest Ukrainian patriots that you could ever imagine. And, and in that sense, Mr. Zelensky, the president, is in some ways the new type of Ukrainian. He's Jewish, he spoke, he grew up speaking Russian, but now he's, I mean, as great a patriot as you could possibly imagine. Well, Alexander Motel, I really appreciate you sharing with us what you are experiencing. Alexander Motel, a professor of political science at Rutgers University. Also, Timothy Fry, professor of post-Soviet foreign policy at Columbia University. And I thank our listeners for sharing their personal connections and how they're feeling about events unfolding today. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. 
We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.